Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are in awe of your grace. We have recited and have memorized uh, Scripture, John 3.16, when we read, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And yet, for us to inherit that eternal life, for that to be received as a gift, your Son had to die a most horrible death. And he did so out of love for you and out of love for a humanity made in his image and his likeness. We marvel at Christ's restraint. He could have called 12 legions of angels. He could have come down from that cross. The Jews demanded a king not knowing that by demanding the king that they wanted, they, were, they would no longer be Israel. You sent them a savior. You sent us a savior. You used the work of a sinful humanity to accomplish the terms and the outcome of the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son brought about through the power of the Spirit. We're in awe because you have done that for us when we were dead, when we were rebels, when we would be there jeering at you, daring you to come down. And you have come down only to be lifted up that by bringing us low, you might raise us up to eternal life. Father, let us contemplate not only this night, but through tomorrow, and then come together in rejoicing the power of the cross that has purchased our redemption, our marvelous, amazing, wonderful, magnificent, humble King, who is the Lord, the Savior, of all who trust in him. Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have two scriptures. Um, so you'll, there's no screen, so you'll have to listen. Um, so we're going to read first from Mark 15, um, 16 to 25, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 3. And this is a narrative we have already heard from John's gospel. But in Mark he writes, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple robe, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled the passerby, 
Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Writing years after this event to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. In uh, thinking through and preparing for this evening's message, I came across uh, these questions and answers from the Heidelberg Catechism, which are appropriate given that tonight is Good Friday. Question 37 asks, Why do you understand, what do you understand by the word suffered? This is from the Apostles' Creed. And the answer is that during his life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us body and soul from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Question 38. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? The answer, so that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. And then the last question, question 39, is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, by this death I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Now, among the, the vast number of historical events, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ deserves the highest place of honor. There had never been a day like it before, and there has not been a day like it since. No other day is as high, no other day is as holy or as sacred as the day Jesus died. No other day can lay claim to be the hinge of human history. Because the crucifixion of Jesus Christ exposes two things in a glaring contrast between the brutality and inhumanity of sin and its consequences and the merciful, loving kindness of God. The first day of the last week of Jesus' life began with his entrance into Jerusalem. We celebrated that on Sunday. Admirers waved palm branches and joyously shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. The last day of the last week of Jesus' life ended with him leaving Jerusalem, carrying a cross as a falsely accused, wrongfully condemned political enemy of Rome. And the brutality of his Roman tormentors left him too exhausted to carry his own cross as the instrument of his execution, so they had to press into service a bystander who was coming into the city, a man named Simon from Cyrene. And Mark tells us who are, Siren, who are Simon's sons so that any witnesses who read the gospel could then verify the story by going to Alexander and Rufus. You think about the metamorphosis from the joy of Palm Sunday to the jeers of Crucifixion Friday, 
And we know from the scriptures that that was due in no small part to the plotting of Caiaphas, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling council, the chief priests, and other religious officials of the day. They conspired to change the cries of, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to let him be crucified. And so it is that every year on Crucifixion Friday, we intentionally rehearse and we intentionally and deliberately remember how and why Jesus died and the importance of this day because we remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ because it is the cornerstone of salvation by grace through faith in him. No cross, no forgiveness of sin, no crucifixion, no salvation. The Apostle Paul captures the importance of the crucifixion when he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you as of first importance. The resurrection plays a tremendous part in validating what happened on Crucifixion Friday. But before we get to that day, Paul says of first importance, the gospel consists of this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The death of Jesus for our sins is the foundation of our redemption. His death is the centerpiece of the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. And as tragic as is the death of Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins without his crucifixion. His death is the door that opens the way to eternal life. It's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's why he says, I am the door. And only those who I call by name enter into God's kingdom through faith in me. When we take a closer look at the events of that crucifixion Friday, that awful day, two things become clear. One, that Jesus died as a result of tragic human circumstances. And two, that Jesus died according to the plan of God. In looking at Jesus' death as a result of tragic human circumstances, the Gospels describe the crafty work of Caiaphas, the high priest. He instigated the death of Jesus. He and the other members of the ruling council, along with Judas, conspired to trap, betray, arrest, falsely accuse and condemn Jesus to death. As the high priest, Caiaphas He should have confirmed the identity of Jesus, of Messiah. He should have confirmed that everything Jesus said about himself was true. He did not. He should have worshipped Jesus as the Messiah. He did not. On the contrary, he along with the scribes and elders and the rest of the Sanhedrin accused Jesus of blasphemy and they condemned him to death. According to the Apostle John, we didn't read it in our Lessons, but if you go to John 11, this had been Caiaphas's plan all along. Because in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 50, immediately after Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, and there arose such a clamor and such a, such a noise of, of, of uh, celebration. People were following Jesus, and the Jews were concerned that if they continued to follow Jesus and made this holy ruckus that the Roman army would crack down on them and the Jews would lose their place. And then Caiaphas stands up and says, you don't know 
what's going on. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. That one man is Jesus. And then John goes on to explain that Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but he was indeed prophesying in the manner of death Jesus would suffer. And so in their rush to condemn, in their rush to condemn Jesus, Caiaphas and, and the Sanhedrin, they finagled with the levers of justice. Also, they could reach their predetermined verdict of guilty. The trial, if you want to call it that, was really just a kangaroo court. They tried Jesus at night. That's against the law. They denied Jesus' defense counsel. That's against the law. They accepted the testimony of false witnesses. That's against the law. The trial made a mockery of justice. But when you think about it, especially now in the cancel culture in which we live, when will God ever receive a fair hearing in the court of men? Immediately after Caiaphas and his cronies declared Jesus guilty, they dragged him to Pilate to demand his execution. Blinded by their hatred of Jesus, Caiaphas and his crew demanded that Pilate do their dirty work for them. And they wanted him crucified for being the very thing that they desperately wanted him to be, but didn't fit into their idea of what is a political champion and a military messiah. And so they convinced Pilate to accuse him of treason against Rome, calling him king, demanding that he be crucified. Mark, the gospel writer, tells us that Pilate, though he is a, a slick politician and knows how things work, Pilate perceived, Mark tells us, that it was out of envy that the Jews had delivered Jesus into his hands. And remember, too, that Jesus had said this at least three times to his apostles, that he was going to Jerusalem, that the Son of Man, meaning himself, would be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, and there he would be killed. Pilate plays his part, but he senses that the Jews are jealous of Jesus' popularity. Maybe he had heard how he made fools of the Jewish religious elite, how he confounded the Pharisees with his knowledge of the Scripture, and how they and the other religious authorities begrudged Jesus the authority of his teaching. Because never a man spoke as this man did, as one having authority, not like the teachers of the law, not like the talking heads or the nattering nabobs of negativity that are on Twitter. When this man speaks, people listen because he speaks truth, and that's a threat. Pilate knew this, or at least sensed it. They didn't want justice. They wanted vengeance. They wanted payback. And they would do anything to get it. That's why they had their trial at night. Because they knew that Pilate only entertained judgment decisions in the morning. That by the time lunch came around, he was off doing things that Roman governors do. However, despite his belief in Jesus' innocence, Pilate realized he had to crucify Jesus. The Jews had backed him into a corner. 
If you release this man, they told him, claiming to be king, you're going to lose your position as governor. How could you justify letting a man who claims to be king live? He poses a threat to Rome. You're no friend of Caesar. And so Pilate, finding himself painted into a corner, knew it. Worse for him, Caiaphas and his cronies knew it. And they pressed their advantage. Desperate to escape the dilemma that he found himself in, Pilate attempted to turn the tables on them. He gave the Jews a choice, as was the custom of the day. I could release for you, he says, Barabbas, or I could give you the king of the Jews. Barabbas was a robber. He was a truly guilty revolutionary. Jesus is innocent. The crowd, egged on by the priests, the scribes, and the elders, shouted for Barabbas. Pilate even went so far as to ask the crowd, why? Why? What evil has this man done? And they shouted all the more, crucify him! Crucify him! The crowd wanted Jesus crucified, and yet they had been carefully led to make this bloodthirsty request. This is an election year. And as we get closer to November, in fact, it's even going on now and has been for some time, every politician seeking political office employs what are known as spin doctors. They are paid agents whose job it is to influence public opinion in favor of his or her candidate. Spin doctors are very skilled at manipulating the truth, manipulating public opinion, so that perception becomes reality. Well, the chief priests, they were the spin doctors of their time in this case. They convinced the people that it was better to have Pilate release Barabbas, a robber, and crucify Jesus, the innocent, all so that they could satisfy their bloodlust. Confronted by the shouting mob, and afraid of a potential riot on his hands, Pilate caves. And according to Matthew 27, 24, he literally washed his hands of the entire dirty business, proclaiming that I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And he released Barabbas, and after ordering Jesus to be scourged with a multi-lashed whip, they delivered him over to be crucified. We read this story and we, we are angered by it, failing to realize that we are the Barabbas, that people are demanding be free because it is Jesus who dies in our place. From a human's perspective, Jesus is the victim of a secret plot. A scared politician, a mindless mob manipulated and misled by the religious establishment but from all appearances, Jesus died as a result of these tragic human circumstances, a conspiracy of conspiracies, but perception is not reality. The truth is otherwise, as the Apostle Paul has told us. What I told you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus died according to the plan of God. According to Paul, there was more at work in the death of Jesus than human schemes and schemers. Jesus, in essence, died as a volunteer. The death of Christ was the predetermined means 
of our redemption. The writer of Hebrews refers to it as the eternal covenant established between the Father and the Son in Hebrews 13. The Bible says, and we have alluded to it already, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's John 3.16. God gave Jesus to die in our place for our sins. God gave his only begotten Son to bear in his body the chastisement, the punishment that would bring us peace that would satisfy the wrath of God against us. He died in fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah made way back in Isaiah 53. He died, did Jesus, according to the plan of God so that our sins could be forgiven. The story of Good Friday is this. Jesus Christ, the baby born of the Virgin Mary, born in a manger, was crucified by a man, Pontius Pilate, in order that we might be saved from our sins. And that would include even those who drove the nails in his hand. Those who had condemned him to die. Speaking of the cross, one scholar writes, the cross is central. It is struck into the middle of the world, into the middle of time, into the middle of destiny. The cross is struck in the heart of God. Something auspicious happened when Jesus died. God was at work in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, this does not minimize, nor does it legitimize the role that sinful people played in killing Jesus. However, it does highlight the commitment Jesus made to reconcile us with God. That he died according to the plan of God. He died to prove, indeed, that God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The death of Jesus Christ is and always will be and must always remain the cornerstone of salvation by grace through faith because it reveals, does it, the death of Christ reveals the aggressive grace of God. He came looking for us when we were rebels, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were his enemies, Paul says Christ died for us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated from God, but God, Paul says, who is rich in mercy, with great love with which he loved us, gave us his Son. Sure, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Judas Iscariot, Pilate, the mob, and even the devil himself all played their part on Crucifixion Friday. But the unseen hand directing the whole thing was the hand of the Almighty God who ordained it from the foundation of time. That the Lion of Judah is the Lamb of God whose blood redeems, saves, cleanses, brings peace between God and us. The death of Jesus Christ is no random execution. God used the conspiracy of those who conspired to kill him, to crucify him, so that his plan of salvation could be completed and our sins could be forgiven. His death is no random act recorded in the annals of Rome. On the contrary, in the words of the great Puritan divine William Gurnall, Jesus was born to die. 
He was sent into the world as a lamb bound with the bonds of an irreversible decree as a sacrifice. There is no redemption but by his blood. Christ did not redeem and save poor souls by sitting in majesty on his heavenly throne, but by hanging on the shameful cross. Under the tormenting hand of man's fury and God's just wrath. Therefore, the poor soul that would have pardon of sin is directed to place its faith not only on Christ, but on a bleeding Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. The cross does more than call for a response. The cross demands a response. You cannot look at the cross and remain neutral. You must respond. The cross demands the only response that is appropriate is repentance and faith. Repentance is turning away from our sinful past by turning toward the Savior who commands our future who holds our destiny, firm and secure. The words of the old hymn, fastened to a rock which cannot move, anchored firm and deep in the Savior's love. When we respond to the cross, we respond to the aggressive grace of God. The cross stands as the greatest demonstration of God's love for a lost humanity because the cross is the highest expression of God's desire to reestablish fellowship with a sinful humanity. So when we ask, why did Jesus die? Jesus died because the crucifixion of Christ is the cornerstone of salvation by grace through faith in him. You think about that, and let's pray as we prepare to receive communion. Our Heavenly Father, we are, we are in awe. We are humbled. And we are challenged. The cross tells us that we cannot mold Jesus into our image. The cross tells us that Jesus is more than just a good moral teacher or a social or political revolutionary. He is none of those things. He is a savior. He is God in human flesh. So help us, O Lord God, as we respond now to the news of Christ's crucifixion for our salvation, as we contemplate the meaning of this table, the bread and the wine, knowing that they represent the body and blood of our Savior, the blood of a new covenant, one that he himself has ratified by his death, that you have confirmed by his resurrection. So help us now, O Lord God, ponder these things, not only this night, but on into Resurrection Sunday and beyond. For this we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.